I would just say you have to continue on no matter what comes your way. I mean, that first night in that outhouse, in that uh, little house with an outhouse and a rat in it, I thought, what am I doing here? But, uh, then, then, you know, you just have to, just, you have to have faith and, and just keep going. You know, as things come, you, you have to, I, don't, I can't think of the correct expression, bend with the wind or, you know, you have to be flexible. You just have to, you have, you have to, first of all, know that this, it's not going to be the way it was when you were in the United States or wherever you're coming from. It's going to be different. Hi, this is Jen Barna with DocWorking.com. Today we have a very special guest on our podcast, Dr. Tony Lazara. Dr. Lazara's story is especially interesting because he took a path less traveled, one that I think you'll find inspiring. Please listen as we spend a few minutes asking him about his story and how he feels about his decision years ago to give up a successful academic career to live his dream of creating a home for children in need of medical assistance in a small town in Peru. Gabriella is hosting the podcast with me and, um, and we're really, really excited and appreciate so much you joining us to talk, no talk with us about your story. No. I, I, Doc Working is a website that's created to give solutions to physicians and help physicians to find ways to achieve their goals and achieve work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And I think that everyone would be inspired by your story. Um, and I, I wanted to have a chance to ask you about your career and your choices and um, to, to give a little bit of, of background, uh, Dr. Tony Lazara uh, is here with us. Dr. Lazara was a uh, pediatric intensivist at uh, Emory University before um, he made a life decision to um, move to Peru and work with children who did not have the uh, resources to access medical care. And he's spent his career since then working with the children. And I, I would love to hear your story, Dr. Tony. Well, okay. Um, as you said that I was, I was at Emory University in pediatric, it was, actually it was neonatal intensive care. I'm a neonatal, it's my subspecialty, neonatology. And I had been there for about 10 years. I started in 1972, 73. I had been there for 10 years and in 1982, um, myself, a colleague, her husband and a friend, we decided for to, we wanted to travel to uh, East Asia and we decided on for, I don't know why, but we decided on India. And, um, we started off in Calcutta, which was, of course, very shocking to us. We're not, we, we, we had sort of steeled ourselves as to what we were going to see, but you can't steel yourself against mm -hmm. something that we saw. And we were just, you know, very much impressed with the, with the extreme poverty that we saw children in the streets. We saw children that had been um, maimed by their parents so that they could be better beggars. Um, um, and so... I contrasted that with what I was doing as a neonatal intensivist, 
uh, taking care of babies that weighed one pound, some of them, um, surrounded by two to $300,000 worth of equipment. Most of these infants, um, at least at that point in time, this was in the early 80s, many of those infants, if they did survive, and most of them did not survive, but if they did survive would be damaged, uh, uh, neurologically damaged. So you know, I just started thinking about what I was doing there and what I could be doing elsewhere, helping disadvantaged children. Um, and, and then too, in my background, of course, I was went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, Catholic um, college. And of course, the missions were always being touted and collections were always being done. And we had missionaries coming to talk to us about their work and that type of thing. So that was really always in the back of my mind, but I had sort of put it off because I was had a great job at Emory. I was doing, uh, we were doing very exciting research. Uh, I was tenured at Emory. So I sort of put that, those thoughts in the back of my mind and went forward at Emory. And, but then the, of course they resurfaced again after I tripped to, um, after I tripped to India. So I returned to Emory and it was an extremely difficult decision to make for the reasons I just said. It was a good job. I had lots of friends who were doing a very good research, very exciting research on brain hemorrhage in premature infants, which is common. At least it was then, it's probably less common now with more advanced uh, technologies. Um, so it took me about maybe a year before making uh, the final decision. The other point problem that I had, of course, is my parents were aging. Uh, I was three hours away from them by plane in Atlanta to Tampa, which, which is where we lived. So all of those things came together, but then I decided in the end that, that uh, this was something that I wanted to do. It was something that I needed to do. So I um, resigned at Emory. I had a, I sold my house uh, and sold my car. And on April the 9th of 1983, I landed in Peru, which had just had severe flooding, no electricity, no water. And they put me in, an out, in, a, in a house way in the back of the property where I was going to work. It had an outhouse with a rat in it. So that's my, that was my introduction to, <laughs> that was my introduction to Peru. Um, and uh, so I stayed with that group. These were um, called the Missionaries of the Holy Apostles. It was a Catholic uh, or, order that had a house, a home actually for disadvantaged adults. We started, uh, we built a pavilion for children and I stayed with that group for four and a half years, but then uh, decided that I would do better on my own because there were too many foreigners. We had different ideas about how to run things. There were Northern Europeans and Canadians and myself, and we were always in conflict. And the patients knew it and they took advantage of it. So I decided that uh, I needed to be on my own. Uh, I looked around for a house in about maybe 10 miles from where I was working. It was a very nice, four-story house, uh, which I bought uh, in 1987. Uh, and with that, we were broke. We had no money after we bought the house. But then the community came together, some Catholic schools in uh, Lima for the wealthy also supported us. Uh, my father uh, went to the parish priest and said, uh, my, my son needs help. Whatever the parish donates, I'll double. So with that, we were able to get going. And then I started a newsletter, which I sent out four times a year. 
and um, that's how we that, that's how we've survived. You know, with people helping us. People, Peruvians are very have been very good to us. Almost all of our food is donated. They drop off sacks of rice and sugar and beans and that type of thing. Sometimes they give us chicken and meat and and what have you. So uh, with that, we've been able to to continue forward. And can you tell us a little bit about the home and and the children that stay? Yeah, there? yeah. The home is is uh, dedicated to children that are ill and whose parents do not have um, adequate resources for medical care. Um, it's really a holding center. The children come from all over Peru because Peru, being a developing country. There's very little medical care, or at least sophisticated medical care, in the rural areas. So if they need a pediatric cardiologist or a pediatric um, nephrologist, kidney specialist, then those are only in Lima. Lima is the center of Peru, actually. It has about a third of the population of Peru. So we receive children from the uh, outlying area. We do have a few children from Lima, but most of them come from the outlying areas that need specialized pediatric care. I'm a general pediatrician. Um, so if a child comes in with a cardiac problem or heart problem, then I send them to the children's hospital. Same thing for the kidneys. Excuse me. <coughs> Almost all of the specialties are represented at the children's hospital. We do get some children with leukemia and there's a national cancer hospital. Eye problems, there's a national eye hospital. So they'll, they'll come into us and then we'll decide where they need to go for uh, continuing medical care. We don't charge uh, the ch children anything. We do ask, just to keep the parents involved, we do ask the parents to help us with the education because the children go to school. So if the children, for example, need a certain amount of money for photocopies, or if they need a certain amount of money for a book or what have you, if the parents can't afford it, then we'll ask them to help us just to keep them involved, you know, so that they don't uh, think that we're taking over total care of, of their child. Once the child is well, the child has to return home. The home is not permanent. It's temporary. There's no time limit. We had one child with us for 15 years. Um, uh, thankfully, yeah. family here in the United States, uh, took him on and he's living with them now because he really had no other place to go uh, when, uh, when, he, when he achieved 18 years. So they go home, we try to keep up with them, although they go to very remote rural areas. Sometimes they will call us and tell us what's going on. If the child needs to return to us, of course, uh, we'll accept the child. Uh, but for most of the children, we do lose contact with them once we've sent them home. And we, like I said, we don't charge anything except for help with education. And all of the proceeds that are donated to the Hogar go specifically to the care of the children. Right, exactly. Uh, we have um, 21 employees, um, 10 nurses, and we have cooks and laundresses, and of course, most of our that, that, that's our greatest expense, our salaries, because we, they are formally employed. They have a contract, they get health care, they get a pension fund, they get an unemployment fund, et cetera, which is very rare in Peru because only, only 30% of uh, employees receive those benefits. 70% of employees don't get anything. They're paid under the table, usually the minimum wage, which I think is $360, something like that. Like for the year, three sixty for the month. 
for the month. Okay. Okay. Right. Still. Okay. So, and Dr. Oh, go ahead, Lauren. Oh. Dr. Tony, um, I'm curious, what would be a typical day for you at the yoga? Well, I, uh, I get up at around a quarter of six, go downstairs, rouse the kids out of bed because the nurses are not successful in doing that. Um, go downstairs to the first floor, open up all the windows, open the doors, unlock all the doors that we've locked at, uh, at night. Uh, go back upstairs, uh, my room, I get ready. We have breakfast at seven. And uh, the children that are going into Lima leave at about 7.30 or so by public transportation. We don't have a special car. They get on the buses like the rest of the poor to go into Lima. Uh, the children that go to school, we do have a chauffeur that picks them up and takes them to the school. Um, there are two sessions. There's a morning session for the younger children from eight to 1.30. And then there's the second session for the older children from 1.30 to six. So at about uh, noon uh, or, or so, we, the children that have remained in the home, they have, we have uh, lunch. Uh, and then during the course of the afternoon, the children start filtering in from school. The children that have gone into Lima start coming back with the people that have taken them into Lima. So I get reports about what the physician said, what we need to do, what medicines the, uh, the children need. Uh, and at about 1.30, the older children go to school. Uh, at five o'clock, the younger children and those that have remained in the home and those that have returned from Lima have supper. Um, and then at about uh, 6.30, the older children come in and they have supper. Uh, and myself and the volunteers, uh, we have supper at about 7.15, 7.30. We have, uh, we have two teachers. One teacher comes in at eight and she leaves at four and she's teaching the children that are in the home that cannot go to school because of their physical disabilities or what have you. She leaves at four and then we have another teacher that comes in at six and she leaves at nine. So after the older children, uh, the younger she starts with the younger children right away the ones that, are, that are, have come in from school uh, at 1.30. When the older children come in, then they go into the classroom. They, they have supper, of course, and then they go into the classroom and she, uh, she's with them until about nine o'clock. At nine o'clock, everyone goes upstairs to bed. Uh, and uh, I go up about maybe 9.30 or so. Um, I try to study for about an hour then I read the newspaper and I'm in bed by uh, 1130. So how many, how many children do you house like on average at any given time? On average, we have between 40 and uh, 50 children. Now at the moment, because of the pandemic and the fact that there is no, we, we can't admit children because of fear of contagion, we only have 20 uh, at the moment. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, after the pandemic is over that we will probably be inundated with children because of there's, a very, there's a very high incidence of congenital malformations, especially cleft lip and palate. And we always have five or six children with cleft lip and palate. And for the past year and a half, we've not been able to accept any of those children, children with leukemia also, children with cerebral palsy. But we've not received any calls and of course we can't them anyway because they would come in with public transportation at risk for contagion. Some of our children, the mother, the parents were very concerned and took them 
even though their treatment was not uh, completed, took them back to their home village because they were so afraid that they would become sick in Lima and would die without the parents being present. And in fact, one of the mothers that returned with her child did uh, contract COVID and did die. She was a very young woman, 20 years old, but uh, mm -hmm. she did not uh, survive the disease. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Are the children doing well by the reports that you're you know, hearing? The yeah, I have, the social worker contacts me at least once a day by, uh, by uh, email and by messenger. And the children are doing very well. Uh, we've had no cases of uh, COVID. We've had one case of uh, COVID of one of our cooks, her husband contracted COVID being obese and diabetic, he did not survive. She was infected also, uh, but uh, being a very strong woman, she didn't have any symptoms, but she's still a carrier. We, we, we're doing the molecular test on her, the, uh, P, the uh, PCR, and she's still a carrier, so she not return to work until she is free uh, 24 hours uh, of the uh, of the virus. Dr. Tony, I'm I'm curious how from from your perspective uh, now that you've had the home the home has been there for is it 20 Well, well, that, well I I was I've been in Peru since 1983 the home that we're in now I bought in 1987 so I think it's 25 years 23 years something like 23 years I think is so I'm really curious how it, it feels to you having made that decision back in the early 80s to make such a big change how how, how you feel about the impact that you've made over these years well I don't know I don't really I don't really think of it a global impact, you know, I, I really work with the, child, the children that come in. Um, I mean, we've had a lot of children, uh, well, that some of them now are, of course, adults and they have their own families that, that have come by with their families and uh, that call me on my birthday, call me on Christmas and New Year's and that type of thing. But I mean, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to measure what a, you know, a global, a global <laughs> impact. I'm just, I just try to concentrate on, on, uh, on the individual children themselves. Will you tell the story of Percy when uh, when he was little and uh, he said to your niece, she said, I'm going to tell my uncle <laughs> about you something. Do you, do you remember that story? Yeah, I had a, um, a niece. She came down to volunteer with us and Percy was doing something that very naughty, I think. I don't remember what he was doing. And she says, I'm going to tell my uncle about you. And he said, well, that's not going to help. He's my father. You know, so <laughs> he may that, be your uncle, but yeah, my, my father. father. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to call me Papa, but now he calls me doctor. I'm not, I don't know if I'm <laughs> his father or not. He's really, he's really uh, grown. I mean, he's a weed. He's, very, he's, he's put on some weight. He's very tall now. I'm really anxious to see him. He's doing very well in school. See, I mentioned that we do have, that all of our children have to return home, but we do have three that have no place to go. Percy is one of them. He's abandoned. We have a 16, I think he's going to be 17 year old um, Jefferson. Do you remember Jefferson with a severe scarring? He's going to be 18. And when you're 18, you age out of the house. By Peruvian law, you cannot have adults 
and children in the same house. So Jefferson is going to age out when he's 18. He has no place to go. He was being placed for adoption, but because of the COVID pandemic, the government is totally shut down and he's going to be 18 soon. You can't adopt an 18 year old. So he, what, what I would like to do with him is find him a, a, an apartment in our little village and put him through school so that he can become independent. And then the other child is that there's a child that uh, was found on the streets, actually. We don't know his age. He's been with us now for five years. He's also up for adoption. So those are the three that, you know, are with us and probably will always be with us. Uh, Jefferson, we can help. I mean, Percy's only 10 and I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to live in, you know, I'm 78 years old right now. So. I'm worried about Percy, you know, if he's not adopted, what's gonna to happen to him if I can't continue uh, uh, working? So, about where we stand. So Dr. Dr. Tony, what, I mean, that was a huge leap of faith on your part to just leave all the, the, the comforts of the US behind and go into an unknown. And it's an amazing story. Knowing what you know now, given all your experiences over the last, what, 30 plus years, would you do it again? Oh yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Without, without blinking, I would do it again. The only, the only um, thing that really concerned me were my parents. You know, they were aging and uh, my father, in fact, both my parents died while I was in Peru. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to be, well, my father, he died, they brought him, they resuscitated him so that I could go down there and tell him goodbye. And as soon as I saw him, and as soon as he saw me, he had, an, he had a tube in his throat and he wanted to pull it out. He didn't want to, you know. So, and then my mother, she uh, died while I was down there. Uh, unexpectedly, she had Parkinson's and was demented, but uh, we weren't expecting her to go that quickly, but she did. So no, the, that was the only thing that really bothered me was leaving my parents, uh, being the oldest Italian son, <laughs> the oldest son of an Italian family. I'm, I was supposed to take care of my parents. You know, My father was okay, he was taken care of. My mother was still alive and, and able to take care of him. But then when she had to go into a nursing home and I would come in you know, and visit her, I, or I would stay her, with her for three weeks. That, then I had to leave her, of course, that really bothered me a lot. That's the only thing. And I, I would, I do not in any way regret the uh, decision that I made. If, if you were advising a young doctor in their career, knowing now, you know, what you know, um, what would you, what, how would you advise them? I would just say you have to continue on no matter what comes your way. I mean, that first night in that outhouse, in that a little house with an outhouse and a rat in it. What am I doing here? But, uh, then, then you know, you just have to just, you have to have faith and, and just keep going. You know, as things come, you you have to. I, don't, I can't think of the correct expression. Bend with the wind, or be, you, know, you have to be flexible. You just have to. You have you have to first of all know that this it's not going to be the way it was when you were in the United States or wherever you're coming from. It's going to be different. And I went down there without speaking Spanish either. That was, a, that was another trauma, but I, find, I, I eventually did, was able to pick it up. So no, just, just keep going. Don't let anything discourage you. Don't let anything uh, get in your way. You know, if, that's, if you feel like this is what your vocation is, keep going. That's what I would tell. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Tony, if, if someone wants to volunteer 
um, how would they reach out to apply to do that? Yeah, we have a website. Um, I think you have the website, right? The www.bielapazfoundation.org. So they yes. can go there, contact me uh, through that uh, website and uh, I can give them information about uh, volunteering. And it's V-I-L-L-A-L-A-P-A-Z. Foundation. Foundation. Right, foundation.org. .org, okay. We will put a link to that on our website so that people can donate and or volunteer. Okay. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. There's a pleasure. Thank you for talking with us. Absolutely. Again, a huge thank you to Dr. Tony Lazara of VillaLaPazFoundation.org, who in this season is a living example of what a life of giving can accomplish. If you would like to donate or volunteer, please go to VillaLaPazFoundation.org. You can find the link in the notes for this episode and on the DocWorking.com About Us page. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of the Doc Working Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe. We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is docworking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Our Instagram is docworking1, and that is with the number one. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story to tell, please reach out to Jen at jen at docworking.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.